Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. We are in Luke chapter number 23 this morning. Luke's gospel chapter number 23. So if you have a bulletin, you can follow along that way. Uh, The insert has the verses we'll read or in your Bible or maybe on the Bible app. Um, I was thinking about movies the last couple of weeks and how, how confusing movies have gotten for me. Uh, you remember the m- movie The Fugitive? You know, you had Harrison Ford, and he's just a wrongly accused person. You had Tommy Lee Jones, who's the law. And then you have this guy, the one-armed, like everyone had very clear roles. You had the one-armed uh, be- uh, uh, suspect. You had uh, Harrison Ford, who's wrongly accused. And you had Tommy. Everybody was really clear and easy to identify. I watched a movie a couple of weeks ago, and the sheriff was, uh, or the the cop, the sheriff, I believe, was, um, he had a shady past, and so there was some doubt whether or not he was a good guy. The the really interesting or weird character in the movie ended up being innocent by the time we got to the end of the movie, and the guy that you thought was the good guy ended up having a dilemma in his life that caused him to do some really weird things. It's just, it it becomes really confusing when the people you expect to be the good characters are no longer good, and the characters you expect to be bad are no longer bad, and it makes it really confusing to follow. Luke 23 is one of those places in the gospel. You have Jesus Christ, and you also have criminals, and before you know it, they're in the same sentence, And it's really hard to understand what's happening sometimes. There's criminals, there's Jesus, and before we know it, they're actually treated the same. The uh, the one who was innocent, Jesus, ends up being the one who has the most compassion on the others who are really guilty from the start. So for a few moments this morning, we want to look at the thieves at the cross. We're in Luke chapter number 23. We're going to begin reading in verse 32, Luke chapter 23 In verse 32, it says this, Two other men, both criminals, everyone say the word criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They divided up his clothes by casting lots, and the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen ones. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. Verse 39, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and die. Save yourself and us. Verse 40, But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you're under the same sentence, 
we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him. Let's all read verse uh, 43 together, right where it says, Jesus answered him. Ready, begin. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. As we inch our way to the celebration of Easter, we want to take a few moments at the cross. It's easy to take the cross for granted. It's easy to forget that the crucifixion of the cross was the ultimate form of torture. And when you're in a church setting, the cross just becomes part of the scenery. There's a cross, I believe, on the front of this pulpit. There's crosses to my left. There's crosses on our stained glass windows. There's really crosses all around us. And if we're not careful, the cross can just blend into the background and it doesn't take center stage. At the cross, we're faced with the reality that our brokenness and our sin carry a penalty, and the penalty is death. At the cross gives us a window into why the darkest day of Jesus reveals the brightest day of history. And so last week, we looked at the Messiah at the cross. And in doing so, we identified some Old Testament passages that prophesied Jesus to be the Messiah, the Christ, the one who would rescue us from our sin, the one that was promised long ago. And in seeing those verses be fulfilled in the New Testament, we see that because Jesus is Messiah, we press on. We will preach the name of Christ because He keeps His promises. Next week, we're going to look at the six hours at the cross. What Jesus did and what He said while at and on the cross is incredibly insightful to us. And so we'll look at the agony at the cross, and then on Palm Sunday in two weeks, we'll look at the King of the Jews at the cross. What began in such ceremony as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey with one who was pronounced the King of the Jews now endures such a painful death. And so we're actually going to take a closer look at his words in Psalms chapter 22. But today we examine the thieves, the thieves at the cross. So Mount Calvary's other name is Golgotha. Golgotha was Aramaic for the skull. It was a place of infamy, but not the good kind. It was the kind associated with death and with, uh, with torture. Golgotha was a small hill just outside the walls of first century Jerusalem. It was near a well-traveled highway, and everyone equated the name Golgotha with the termination zone for the wicked. This is where the wicked would go to die. This is where criminals go to get punished. And this is where they took Jesus. Especially in the Jewish mind, to be hung on a tree was to be cursed by God. And now at the end of his life, Jesus is seen as one of these bad people. He's seen as one of these criminals. And yet what was actually happening at the cross is this place called Calvary is where our salvation was accomplished. When Jesus was crucified, he was one of three criminals executed that day. On either side of him, depending on your translations, it'll say two bandits or two criminals or two thieves. It'd be a mistake for us not to consider the thieves when looking at the cross. In fact, in many ways, Jesus died as he lived in the company of those considered bad. 
I want you to think about Jesus during the Gospels and who Jesus chose to spend his time with and who he chose to have meals with and who he chose to go out of his way to make sure they were included in the message of the gospel. I think one of the chief complaints that the the high priest and the religious elite had for Jesus in Luke chapter 11 is they said, Jesus, we, we, we have this really big complaint. And our really big complaint is this, you keep having meals with sinners. This was the extent of their complaint. It had nothing to do with doctrine. It had nothing to do with what Jesus was teaching in that moment. They had this real big issue that Jesus, who proclaimed himself Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, would spend a meal with sinners. In many ways, Jesus died as he lived in the company of those considered bad. And yet the most significant thing about Jesus' suffering on the cross was that he was not a victim of circumstances. This is what God had in mind, that he was in control. John 10 says it this way for us. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. Look at verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. Make no mistake, the cross was brutal. It would have been terrible to be forced to endure such torture as a criminal. It would have been beyond terrible to be forced to endure such torture as someone who was innocent of a crime. But to willingly and freely choose it out of love is nothing short of remarkable. We know that there's two thieves, and one of the thieves who were crucified blasphemed Jesus. Joined in the mockery and scorn offered by others at the cross. He reasoned that if Jesus was Messiah, then let him save himself and us. And what he missed is that Jesus was in the process of saving all of eternity through death. Now the other thief was asked uh, asked Jesus to remember him. What's interesting is in both Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel, both thieves are recorded as hurling insults at Jesus. And I want you to think about that stage where Jesus is on the cross and he's, uh, there's a thief on either side. And on the one side, the one is very vocal in his mockery of who Jesus is. And on the one side, that man is so uh, brutal with his words in, in which he calls into question the prophecy of old. He calls into question Jesus' motive. He calls into question Jesus' kingship. And he said, if he's really Messiah, let him save himself. What's interesting, in Matthew and Mark's gospel, the other thief, he was participating. He was hurling insults as well. And yet at some point, the other criminal began to see things differently. And I have to imagine that the other criminal saw Jesus hanging on the cross. The other criminal saw Jesus going through the torture of the cross. And at some point, the second thief, when he came to his senses, began to understand what was happening. He recognized his own sin. He began to understand who Jesus was. And he calls out to Jesus and he believes Jesus who was what he, that Jesus was who he said he was. And he believed the promise of life from Jesus. 
it's significant to note that when the second thief had a request of Jesus, he said, remember me, that Jesus not only answered that, he answered it way beyond expectation. You see, the thief on the cross had some distant time in mind. What did Jesus tell him? He told him, today, today you'll be with me. The thief on the cross asked only to be remembered. And Jesus goes beyond that. He said, not only will I remember me, I I will remember you, but you will be with me. And the thief on the cross looked only for a kingdom, and yet Jesus promised him paradise. It's interesting, these two thieves and these two moments in Jesus Christ in the middle, and yet the story of Jesus Christ has always had these peculiar details in it. Jesus the Messiah would be born in a manger, in a place that would be forgotten, in a small forgotten little town called Bethlehem, in a, in a, in a setting that would not be desirous of someone who would be king one day. He was born in a forgotten circumstance, in a forgotten stable, a manger, a place where animals would go to bed. This is where Jesus Christ would enter humanity. And yet the details of Luke chapter 22 and Luke chapter 23 and everything leading up to the cross are just as peculiar. Here's Jesus and the method in which God would proclaim that Jesus would pay for our sins would be on this cross, this common form of torture, this common form of crucifixion reserved only for the worst of the worst, the, the, the worst of the thieves, the worst of the criminals. This is what God had in mind for Jesus' death, this cross. All throughout the story of Jesus, there are these particular details that make us wonder, why are the criminals even included Couldn't it be on that one day, Jesus, that you're the only one on Mount Calvary? Wouldn't it have been better to not have either cross on either side? Uh, Aren't they distracting us from the message at the cross? Max Lucado does an amazing job of sharing the story of Edwin Thomas. Edwin Thomas is a master of the stage in the 1800s. He debuted in Richard III at the age of 15, and he quickly established himself as a premier Shakespearean actor. In New York, he performed Hamlet for 100 consecutive nights. And in London, he won the approval of the tough British critics. And when it came to tragedy on the stage, Edwin Thomas was in a select group. And when it came to tragedy in life, the same could be said as well. I want you to meet Edwin's two brothers, John and Junius. Both were actors, although neither rose to Edwin's stature. In 1863, the three siblings unified their talents to perform Julius Caesar on the same stage. Max Lucado remarks that the fact that Edwin's brother John, which is on the right, when he took the role of Brutus in Julius Caesar, it was an eerie foreboding harbinger of what awaited the brothers and the nation just two years later. For this same John who played the assassin in Julius, Caesar, is the same John who took the role of assassin in Ford's Theater. On a crisp April night in 1865, John here on the right stole quietly into the rear box 
in the Washington Theater and fired a bullet at the head of Abraham Lincoln. The last name of these brothers is Booth. There's Edwin Thomas Booth on the left and John Wilkes Booth on the right. Edwin was never the same after that night. He nearly was driven out of the theater. He might never have returned to the stage had it not been for a twist of fate at a New Jersey train station. Edwin was waiting his coach when a well-dressed young man, pressed by the crowd, lost his footing and fell between the platform and a moving train. And without hesitation, Edwin locked a leg around a railing, grabbed the man, pulled him to safety, and after the sighs of relief, the young man recognized the famous actor, Edwin Booth. Edwin didn't recognize him, though. That knowledge came three weeks later in a letter he carried in his pocket to the grave, a letter from General Adams Badeau, Chief Secretary to General Ulysses S. Grant. The letter thanked Edwin Booth for saving the life of the child of an American hero, President Abraham Lincoln. How ironic that while one brother killed the president, the other brother saved the president's son. It was Robert Todd Lincoln that, in, that Edwin saved. Edwin and James Booth. I want you to think about it. Same father, same mother, same profession, same passion, and yet one chooses life and the other death. One begs to wonder, how does this happen? I'm not sure how that happens, but I know this, it does happen. Though their story is dramatic, it's not unique. Abel and Cain were both sons of Adam. Abel chose God, and Cain chose jealousy, envy, murder. And here's the thing, God lets them both decide. Abraham and Lot, both pilgrims in Canaan, both of them have given a choice. Abraham chooses God and to follow after God, and Lot chooses Sodom. He chooses temptation. He chooses the depravity of the world. And God lets both Abraham and Lot both choose. You think about David and Saul, both kings of Israel. And David at a young age is heralded into great favor among the nation and he chooses God in all his life and every time he makes a mistake and every time he stumbles he chooses God and yet Saul chooses power he chooses fame he chooses what's right in front of him and God lets both David and Saul decide I want you to think about two men in the New Testament who both denied Christ Peter denies Christ but so did Judas Peter looked for mercy, and Judas sought the end of his own life. And in both instances, God lets them both decide. In every page of history, on every page of Scripture, the truth is revealed. God allows us to make our own choices. And no one delineates this more clearly than the teaching of Jesus Christ. According to him, we get to choose the narrow gate or the wide gate. We get to choose the narrow road or the wide road. We get to choose whether we will build our life on rock or we will build our life on sand. We get to choose whether we serve God or whether we serve our own pleasures and our own 
riches. God gives choices, and these choices have eternal consequences. Perhaps this is why there's two crosses on either side of Christ. This is the reminder of Calvary's trio of crosses. This is why perhaps there's not six or ten executed that day, and perhaps why Jesus was in the center by every account, the one criminal on the left, the other on the right, and could it be that the two crosses on the hill symbolize one of God's greatest gifts, and that's this, the gift of choice. The two criminals have so much in common. They are convicted by the same system. They are convicted to the condemned to the same death. They're surrounded by the same cross. They're equally close to Jesus. In fact, they begin with the same sarcasm. As Matthew and Mark's Gospels say, they both hurled insults at Jesus Christ, but then at one moment, one changed. One of the criminals on the cross began to shout insults. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself. And the other stepped up and said, no, you should fear God. We're getting the punishment we deserve. Can't you see? He's innocent. And this man has done nothing wrong. And then he says and he turns to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus' words ring loud and true and so comforting in that moment. I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Now much has been said about the prayer of this thief who is at the end of his life, and he's considering the consequences of his own decisions, and he comes to Christ in great uh, regret and with great guilt and, and asks Jesus to remember him. And much is said about that prayer. But wouldn't a personal invitation to the other thief been appropriate by Jesus at this time? The other thief just stood there and, and doubled down on his mockery and, and further mocked Christ and We rejoice with the thief who changed, and we wonder with the thief who didn't. What about him, Jesus? Doesn't he get a personal invitation? Wouldn't a word of persuasion be timely? After all, we we know the shepherd leaves the ninety and nine to pursue the one. The housewife sweeps the house looking for the lost coin. Wouldn't this be the opportunity to tell the other thief, hey, you too can be with me in paradise. The shepherd does look for the sheep. The housewife does clean the house for the coin. But think of the father of the prodigal son in Luke 11. He just waits. While the thief leaves the ninety and nine and pursues the one, while the, while the woman turns the house upside down looking for this one coin, the father waits. You see, the sheep was lost innocently and the coin was lost irresponsibly, but the son left intentionally. He left by choice. And so the father gives him the choice and he stands and he simply waits for that choice to be made. And so Jesus gives both thieves the same opportunity. There are times when God sends thunder to stir us, when He sends blessings to awaken us, and there are times when God sends nothing but His silence as He honors us with the freedom to choose Him. You see, there's so many parts of our life where we don't get to have choice. We don't get to choose our gender. We don't get to choose our siblings. We don't get to choose 
our race or our place of birth. You don't get to choose how much hair you have or not. And sometimes the lack of choice angers us and we will say, it's not fair. It's not fair that I was born here. It's not fair that this is my family construct. It's not fair that I was, uh, I was without this. And it's not fair that uh, my, 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 my chemistry, my, gene- my genetics are this way. It's just not fair. And for most of us, at some point in our life, we would like to go back and say, man, Lord, I'd just like to have a full head of hair. Is that too much to ask? And while we have very little about how we enter into this world, we have very little choice in how we enter this world, we have all the choice in the world on whether we choose Christ or not. When it comes to our life on earth, we weren't given a voice or a vote, but when it comes to life after death, you were given a choice. Have we been given any greater privilege than that of choice? Not only does this privilege offset any injustice, the gift of free will can offset our mistake. I want you to think about this thief who repented. We don't know anything about him. We know very little about him. It's very interesting to read uh, other historians during the time of first century Jerusalem. These These two criminals on the cross, they have specific names. They have families. Other historians have written about them. And we don't know much about their life, but we know that this thief at some point in his life made some mistakes in his life. He chose the wrong crowd, the wrong morals, the wrong values, the wrong behavior at some point. And yet, is he spending eternity reaping the fruit of all the bad choices he made? In fact, just the opposite. He's enjoying the fruit of the one good choice he made. And the end of his bad choices were redeemed by a solitary good one. You and I, we have choices we've made and Many of them we regret, and many of them we we would look back on and say, I wish I hadn't made that choice, and I wish I hadn't made that choice. But standing in front of us today is a choice, a choice for eternity, a choice for Christ, a choice that offsets the other ones in our life. And the thieves at the cross remind us of our greatest opportunity, and that is this, a choice. How can two brothers be born of the same mother, be born of the same father, grow up in the same house? One chooses life and the other chooses death. I don't know, but that's what happens sometimes. How could two men see the same Jesus and one choose to mock him as they stand in the same judgment as Christ himself? And why does the other choose to pray and pursue Christ? I don't know, but that's what happens. And here's the thing, when one prayed, Jesus loved him enough to save him. And when the other mocked Jesus, Jesus loved him enough to let him. It was a choice. And he allows the same choice for us today. The thieves at the cross. Why is it that we have this opportunity to gaze upon first century Jerusalem, to look at Calvary and see Jesus on a cross, and on the one side there's a thief, and on the other side there's a thief, and we say in our hearts, He deserves better than that. He shouldn't be surrounded by criminals. He's the only one there that's innocent. He shouldn't have to endure the torture and the shame and the agony and the the ridicule of standing in the presence of other bad people. But the reason he did was to picture to us that in every one of our lives we have a choice. And every day we're given multiple, multiple, 
multiple choices. Will I choose myself or will I pursue Christ? Will I, will I choose what's right in front of me and the, and the gratification that comes with the momentary decision? Or will I choose righteousness? Will I choose the way of life? And might I remind us this morning the reason why he was okay standing on a, on a hill with two other thieves is to picture to us that he died on the cross for us. And the reason he was surrounded by those considered bad is this is exactly the same way he lived his life in pursuit of every single one who would have the opportunity to choose him. And so this morning, the thieves at the cross picture to us the greatest opportunity in front of us, and that is this. It pictures the opportunity to choose. You see, Daniel, I've already chosen. I've already chosen him for my life. I've chosen him for my family. What is, the, what is the next decision in your life that allows you to choose Christ over self, that allows you to choose righteousness and life and goodness and mercy over selfishness? Because every single day we wake up with the same gift every single morning, and that's the choice to follow him. Would you bow your heads as we have a word of prayer right now? Just for a moment, I'm going to ask you to have your heads bowed, and we're going to pray, and together we're going to make some decisions, and maybe individually you need to make a decision to just pursue Christ. The worship team is going to come forward, and they're going to get ready to lead us into worship in just a few moments, but as we remain with our heads bowed, I want to talk to you, church family, and those who are watching on the live stream, those followers of Jesus Christ, those who would say, you know what, Daniel, I've made my choice. I have decided to follow Jesus. And I remember, Daniel, when I was 8 or 10 or 15 or 37 when I made that decision to follow him. Oh, in this moment, we're just going to breathe a word of thanksgiving and gratitude to Jesus for the opportunity to have come to the place in our life where we have chosen Christ. What a gift we've been giving. What a privilege and honor it is to follow him. I would imagine in a room this size and with others who are watching online, though, there's, there might be a few who have, at some point in your life, you're, you're recognizing even right now that, you know, Daniel, I've actually never made the decision to follow him. I've never come to the place in my life where I chose Christ. I'd love to give you that opportunity right now. I'd love for you to right now have the opportunity not only to follow Christ, to proclaim him Lord and Savior, but to echo the words of the thief and simply say, Father, remember me. And just like with the thief, Jesus will answer your prayer way beyond your expectation. Because Jesus doesn't ask you to fill out a resume. He doesn't ask you to fill out an application and say, you know what, we're going to get back to you on this. No, in the moment that you decide that you want to choose Christ, in the moment where you decide you want to get Proclaim him Lord and Savior. Jesus says today is the day of salvation. The moment that you come to Christ is the moment of salvation for you. 
And just like the thief, even though we might say, Lord, we just want you to remember me, Jesus goes beyond expectation and says, not only will I remember you, today I will be with you and you will be with me. He promises his presence in your life. And maybe this is your opportunity to say, I choose Christ. I choose him. Above all, I choose him. Boy, if that's you today and you are proclaiming your life to Christ in this moment, we'd love the opportunity to rejoice with you. We'd love the opportunity to, to help you along in this new decision in your life and what it means to follow Jesus Christ. So if you're watching on the live stream and you are making this decision today, we'd encourage you to reach out to our church to message us. If you're here today in the building and you are making that decision, we'd invite you to take one of those green cards and just simply notate on there that we'd like some more information about it, what it means to follow Jesus Christ. With our heads bowed for just a moment longer, church family, let's breathe a prayer of, of submission that yields ourselves to Christ so that tomorrow morning when you make up and you have that decision to, to make, that you choose Christ, that you choose to follow him, that you choose the moment of prayer, that you choose to spend time in his word, that you will choose to pray with your spouse, that you will choose to be gracious and loving and compassionate to your family and to your coworkers, that you would choose well. Let's take a moment all across the auditorium and on the live stream. Let's make that prayer of submission right now. Jesus, thank you for including the thieves on the cross. Thank you for allowing us to see what it looks like in our own life to have choices. And, and Father, thank you for the gift of free will, the gift of being able to choose. Father, we pray that, Father, I just pray that we would yield ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.